Hello everyone, my name is Vanessa Lagos. I am a first year PhD student under Dr. Hans Stein, and today I'll be talking about the influence of the level of dietary digestible calcium on growth performance, bone ash, plasma calcium, and abundance of genes involved in calcium absorption in 11 to 25 kilogram peaks fed different levels of digestible phosphorus. To give a little bit of background about the study, Unlike requirements for phosphorus that are expressed as digestible phosphorus, requirements for calcium have been expressed as a total calcium because of a lack of data for the digestibility of calcium in feed ingredients. However, recent work has generated values for digestible calcium with and without phytase in different calcium-containing feed ingredients, which has allowed for the formulation of diets based on digestible calcium. Indeed, research has been conducted to estimate requirements for calcium expressed as a ratio between standardized total tract digestible calcium, STTD calcium, and standardized total tract digestible phosphorus, STTD phosphorus, in peaks from 25 to 50, 50 to 85, and 100 to 130 kilograms. Results from these studies indicated that if phosphorus is at the requirement, growth performance will be maximized at a ratio from 1.35 to 1 for young pigs to 1.10 to 1 for finishing pigs. Whereas for bone ash, the maximum response will be observed at a ratio from 1.8 to 1 in growing pigs to 2.3 to 1 in finishing pigs. So we can clearly observe that requirements for maximizing bone ash are greater than for maximizing growth performance. In terms of 11 to 25 kilogram peaks, an attempt to estimate the requirement for digestible calcium was made by using one level of digestible phosphorus and six levels of digestible calcium. However, because of a reduction in growth performance as dietary calcium increased, an optimal digestible calcium to digestible phosphorus ratio could not be estimated. Therefore, the objective of this experiment is to test two hypotheses. The first one is that calcium requirement to maximize growth performance expressed as a ratio between digestible calcium and digestible phosphorus is less than 1.40 to 1, and this number is based on the shown results for heavier peaks. The second hypothesis is that increased dietary calcium increases plasma calcium concentration and decreases expression of genes related to transcellular calcium absorption and tight junction proteins. The second hypothesis is based on the fact that there are two routes for intestinal calcium absorption, the paracellular pathway and the transcellular pathway, and the use of each pathway is dependent on the concentration of calcium in the diet. To set up this slide, here we observe the enterocytes that line the villi in the intestinal tract. The brush border is facing the luminal side, and in the opposite side is the vasolateral surface. So, where there is low calcium in the diet, calcium is absorbed through the cell. First, it enters the cell through a brush border channel, such as TRPV6. Once in the cell, calcium is bound to calcium-binding proteins, such as D9K, which move calcium towards the vasolateral site, to be finally released by a plasma membrane calcium, ATPase. But, if there is high calcium in the diet, calcium is absorbed through tight junction proteins that are located in the intercellular space. 
These proteins could be integral proteins such as clouding one and occluding or peripheral membrane proteins such as ZO1. Moving on to the Mathilan methods, 20 corn soybean meal based diets were formulated using four levels of digestible phosphorus from 0.16 to 0.5%, representing from 50 to 150% of the digestible phosphorus requirement, and five levels of total calcium from 0.21 to 1.19%, representing from 30 to 170% of the total calcium requirement. We did not include phytase in these diets, and we used values from digestible calcium in the feed ingredients included in the diets to calculate the digestible calcium concentration in each diet. This resulted in 20 different ratios between digestible calcium and digestible phosphorus. That range from 0.28 to 1 to 4.63 to 1, being 1.33 to 1, the ratio from the diet where the estimated requirement were used. We fed these diets to 640 pigs. There were four pigs per pen for a total of eight replicate pens per diet. Diets were fed for 21 days and growth performance parameters were calculated. On day 21, one pig per pen was euthanized and the right femur, blood samples, and duodenal and ileal tissue were collected to measure bone characteristics, plasma calcium, and gene expression. For the statistical analysis, a second-order surface response model was used. The model includes the lineal effect of calcium and phosphorus, the quadratic effect of calcium and phosphorus, and interactions between linear and quadratic calcium and phosphorus. We start with the full model, and if a term or an interaction was not significant, the model was reduced by removing the non-significant terms. Moving on to the results, I'm going to start with data from growth performance and bone mineralization. In the model to estimate maximum growth performance, three of the four interactions between calcium and phosphorus were removed because were not significant. This graph shows the average daily gain of pigs fed the experimental diets. The horizontal axis represents the five levels of digestible calcium and the vertical axis represents the predicted variable. And from now on, the green line represents phosphorus below the requirement, the orange line represents phosphorus at the requirement, and the purple and red lines represent phosphorus above the requirement, being purple 0.42% and red 0.50% of digestible phosphorus. So if phosphorus is below the requirement, increasing dietary calcium reduces average daily gain. This is likely because excess calcium may bind phosphorus, which exacerbates the already phosphorus deficiency. Now, if phosphorus is provided at the requirement from the lowest level of calcium, there is an improvement in gain, indicated that in these diets, phosphorus is limiting gain. But again, as more calcium is included in the diet, average daily gain is reduced. So there is a detrimental effect of excess calcium in average daily gain. However, if phosphorus is above the requirement, the negative effect of increasing concentrations of dietary calcium is ameliorated, meaning that as the concentration of phosphorus increases, calcium becomes more limiting than phosphorus. The predicted maximum responses were observed at a ratios 
of 1.93 to 1 if phosphorus was below the requirement, 1.39 to 1 if phosphorus was at the requirement, 1.28 to 1 if phosphorus was at 0.42% and 1.22 to 1 if phosphorus was at 0.50%. For gain-to-feed ratio, similar response. Decrease in feed efficiency if phosphorus is below the requirement, improvement if phosphorus is at the requirement, indicating that phosphorus is the limiting nutrient in the diet, and by the addition of more phosphorus in the diet, calcium becomes more limiting than phosphorus. The maximum responses were observed at ratios of 1.51 to 1 if phosphorus was below the requirement, 1.25 to 1 if phosphorus was at the requirement, and 1.20 to 1 and 1.17 to 1 if phosphorus was at 0.42 and 0.50% respectively. So here we observe that for gain-to-feed ratio, the values were smaller than for average daily gain, which needs to be taken into account. But to maximize both average daily gain and gain-to-feed, a ratio between digestible calcium and digestible phosphorus less than 1.4 to 1 is needed. Moving into the results for bone mineralization, for this variable, the full model was used. This graph shows the results from concentration of bone ash in grams per femur. So here we observe that at the lowest level of calcium, there are small differences among the four levels of phosphorus. But if we increase the concentration of calcium to the requirement level, there is an improvement in bone ash if phosphorus is at or above the requirement. And if we keep increasing the concentration of calcium in the diet, then we observe differences among levels of phosphorus. This indicates that if calcium is low in diets, calcium is the limiting nutrient for bone synthesis. But if dietary calcium is high, phosphorus becomes the limiting nutrient, demonstrating that the presence of both calcium and phosphorus is crucial for the synthesis of bone tissue. The maximum responses were observed at a ratios of 1.66 to 1 if phosphorus was at the requirement, 1.50 to 1 if phosphorus was at 0.42% and 1.30 to 1 if phosphorus was at 0.50%. Here we can also observe that if phosphorus was below the requirement, increasing concentrations of calcium did not affect the concentration of bone ash. Now let's move into the results for plasma calcium and gene expression. So in the model used for the concentration of calcium in plasma, all the interactions were removed because were not significant. Here we are looking at the results for plasma calcium. We can observe that there is an increase in the concentration of plasma calcium as more calcium is included in the diet. However, the effect of calcium is quadratic, meaning that because of hormonal regulation, the increase plasma calcium as a result of increasing dietary calcium will plateau. In terms of phosphorus, we observe that the concentration of plasma calcium decreases as the concentration of dietary phosphorus increases. This means that if phosphorus is available, more bone tissue will be synthesized and therefore calcium will be pulled out from the bloodstream to be stored in bones and less calcium will be present in plasma. Now, in terms of gene expression, the model only contained the linear effect of calcium. For the transcellular pathway, which was tested in the duodenum, 
the target genes were TRPV6 for the brush border channel, S100G for the calcium binding proteins, and ATP2B1 for the calcium membrane ATPase. However, only TRPV6 and S100G could be predicted by the amount of dietary calcium. So here we have the results. As more calcium is included in the diet, there is a reduction in the expression of these two genes. So this indicates that if the diet is high in calcium, the transcellular absorption of calcium will be reduced. In terms of the paracellular pathway, the target genes were CLDN1 and OCLN for the integral membrane proteins and ZO1 for the peripheral membrane protein. In duodenum, only ZO1 and OCLN could be predicted by the amount of dietary calcium, whereas in ileum, only ZO1 and CLDN1 could be predicted by the amount of calcium in the diet. Here we have the results for duodenum. Again, we observe a reduction in the expression of these genes as more calcium is included in the diet, so we believe that less expression of tight junction proteins means more opportunity for calcium to cross the intracellular space. Therefore, the paracellular calcium absorption will be increased under high calcium diets. Similar results were observed for CLDN1 and ZO1 in the ileum. A reduction in the expression of these genes as calcium increases in the diet, indicating that paracellular calcium absorption increases if the amount of dietary calcium is high. So, in conclusion, increasing dietary calcium decreases growth performance of peaks if phosphorus is at or below the requirement. The ratio between digestible calcium and digestible phosphorus to maximize growth performance is less than to maximize bone ash. In pigs from 11 to 25 kilograms, a ratio around 1.35 to 1 is needed to maximize growth performance if phosphorus is at the requirement. An increase in dietary calcium increases plasma calcium concentration, decreases transcellular, but increases paracellular calcium absorption. With this, I would like to acknowledge AB Vista for the financial support and everybody from Dr. Stein Lab. And if you want to learn about the research we are conducted in our lab, please visit our website at nutrition.ansi.illinois.edu. Thanks for listening.